Amen and good morning. It is great to be with you guys. Good to see more and more people week after week. Uh, Welcome to you if you are online. As Will said, we we laid hold of your couch this week and dragged you all the way to the second row. So hopefully that does not make you anxious, okay? Uh, It is Palm Sunday, man, and Palm Sunday is awesome. Palm Sunday is the beginning of really, spiritually speaking, the most significant week of the year, if you think about it, for Christians worldwide. This week, we are going to celebrate the suffering of an innocent man. When was the last time you did that? Doesn't happen. This week, we will celebrate the murder, the crucifixion, the brutal killing of an innocent man, and we will call the day upon which it happened good. Good. Oh, man, it's better than good. We will gather, as Will said, for one of my favorite services, which is Holy Saturday, and and we will just meditate upon the sin that put him on that cross. And we will meditate upon the love that held him there. Guys, and next Sunday, we're just going to blow the roof off the church. It's going to be expensive. That's the only part that bothers me, honestly. Like, no, I mean, really, like, if there's a reason to do it, this is it. Why? Because Jesus is risen. The innocent one has died for the guilty. And the debt that we owed to God has been paid and accepted. Payment accepted, how do you know? Because <laughs> he's alive. That's how you know. That's how you know that you're free. So Palm Sunday, join us this week. Be a part of that journey. As Will said, we're continuing in our study of the books of First and Second Kings. And as we entered into this part of it, this particular week, uh, you know, I started thinking about the Bible and some of the reactions to it that we have typically as people. So oftentimes we'll, you know, read the Bible and we'll think to ourselves, man, that just, we feel disconnected by, from it. And here's the reason, because it feels, at least in parts, primitive to us. In other words, when we come to the Bible, at times we encounter people who are doing practices and things that we do not get in our tendency when that's our feeling is to just dismiss the Bible either entirely or at least in part, those parts that we deem to be particularly primitive. And the reality is we miss so much as a result of that. I say all of that because this week we were in 1 Kings 13 through 16. And if you did your personal worship this week, you know that we looked at 10 different kings. Okay, nine of which were bad, one of which was good. And what was the difference in every instance? These nine guys literally, physically bowed down to literal, physical images or idols that either they created or they had created out of wood, stone, silver, gold, or some combination of those things. And this guy over here didn't. He didn't do it. That's the difference. And we see stuff like that and we're like, that is ridiculous, man. Like, who would do that? We can't relate to that. It doesn't communicate to us. We're like, ah, you know, that's just crazy. We read three chapters like that, four chapters, and we're like, okay, what's next? And, and we miss the reality that these people that we deem primitive were far more sophisticated than we think they were. And the truth of the matter is, we're far less sophisticated than we think we are. We are not unlike them. Maybe a little in practice, but that's it. The one thing that never changes throughout the entire course of human history is this right here. The human heart, guys, is exactly the same as it ever was. It is just as broken and it is just as idolatrous. We do the same things. I think it might help you to know that when these people bowed down to these images, these idols that they made with their hands or again, you know, ordered on Amazon or whatever, delivered by a drone, however it worked back then, 
Okay, when these guys bowed down to these idols or these images, they didn't think, they didn't believe that the idol or the image was actually the deity itself. What they believed was that the deity inhabited the idol or the image that they had made. Much like your soul inhabits your body. You get the idea? And so they did think, therefore, that they had sort of captured, if you will, the deity for themselves. And then they would do with that deity the same thing that you and I, consciously but more often subconsciously, try to do with our deity. And what is that? To control him, to manipulate him, to get him to do what it is that we want him to do for us. And how exactly did they do that? Because we do it the same way. By making sacrifices to the deity. By engaging in ritual practices and so forth before the deity, by ascribing worship and honor and and whatnot to the deity. So in other words, they would come on Sunday, if you will, and they would give and they would serve and they would worship. They might even serve in the children's ministries. You get the idea? And then on Monday, what were they expecting? That God would close the deal. I mean, that's why I did this on Sunday, so you'd close the deal for me on Monday. Or I did this on Sunday, so you'd save my marriage on Monday. Or I did this on Sunday, so you'd rescue my child on Monday. Or I did this on Sunday, fill in the blank. Here's how you know if you're guilty of this. You're guilty of this if on Monday, when what you asked for on Sunday doesn't happen, you're ticked at God and you feel like you deserve better from him than you're getting and you deserve better from him. Why? Based on your performance. It's like, well, Lord, you know, I mean, I don't get it because I paid for goods and services on Sunday. You know, I I did my personal worship the whole week leading up. Gave an extra 20 And yet here I am, disappointed, let down. You know what that's called? Idolatry. We have taken the true and the living God, and not with our hands, with our hearts. That's where we make idols. And we have manufactured a God out of him that is no God at all. Like, if that's what you're feeling on Monday, then the God that you worshipped on Sunday was not the God of the Bible. And I say that because the God of the Bible cannot be bribed. The God of the Bible cannot be paid off. The God of the Bible never sits up in heaven going, I don't know, I know what it is you want me to do for you on Monday, but if you'll just pray a little more, if you'll just give a little more, if you'll go out maybe like on Tuesday and you'll serve food to the homeless, like if you'll pray five more times this week, week and you line up six weeks in a row at church, then I'll do this for you because I'll feel obligated. It doesn't work that way. I think these people were not unsophisticated at all. I mean, you know, the practice maybe, but they're just like us. We do the same thing. We fashion idols in our hearts. They just did it with their hands. So think about this. If they wanted health, they had a God of health. So then they worshiped the God of health and they made sacrifices before the God of health and they had religious practices for the God of health. Why? Because they loved the God of health? They thought the God of health was worthy of their worship. They didn't care at all about the God of health. They wanted health from the God of health. So what was their God? Health. So it is for so many of us. Is that not true? The gym is our temple. The personal trainer is our priest. Health or fitness or looking good or whatever ultimately is our God. You know, we look at the true and the living God and we're like, I don't have time to do this and I don't have time to do that and feed the homeless, that's crazy. And every day we do this personal worship thing and then, you know, we come to China. I don't have time to do that. I spend 20 hours a week working out though. Time's not the problem. It's not. Okay, there's a reason I chose that example. 
I could have done it with business, all right? So your office is the temple, your partners or your clients or something are the priests and money or how it makes you feel or success or esteem or whatever it is, is the God. I could have done it with love. Although I'm going to be honest, I've been married for 29 years, super excited about the arrangement, not going to lie. We dated for years before that. It was amazing. And I have no idea where the temple of love is. Is that like Publix? Like, where is that? Where do you go to meet people? I mean, I'm not asking because I'm interested. I just want to, like, I honestly have no idea. You know, it's like fresh market, you know, like more expensive. I, I don't know. I chose fitness because I am incredibly confident right now. I don't care how many people are online, how many of you are here, how many will come in the next service. I am the only person out of all of us who has two, not one, but two pull-up bars hanging, wait for it, from the rafters, the ceiling of my living room. Anybody else? I married a good woman, didn't I? Like, that's even odder than me, like, that she would allow for that. It's crazy. All right. I've done P90X. By the way, I've done several of these several times. So I've done P90X. That's actually when the pull-up bars went up. So I did P90X, P90X2, P90X3. I've done T25. I've done Insanity. I've done Insanity Max 30. That's the best one, if you're wondering. Okay? It's really hard it's really good. I did this thing called boot camp or something with Tony Horton. Eh, not so great. I bought some of his one-on-one workouts. I've done a whole bunch of those. I did a 21-day challenge because, to be honest, that's why I do all of this. I just like the challenge. And when I am doing it, I am super intense about it. Like, if I get the flu, I will throw up, and then I'll come out, and I'll do the workout. Commitment. The only time I stop is when I get a minor injury And then because I won't stop, it becomes a disabling injury. Right now, my right knee hurts, and it has been hurting since right around Christmas, and I have not eased up at all. And so instead, I went to the orthopedic surgeon, and I said, look, can we do something about this? I said, this is really simplistic, okay? So I know that I'm going to oversimplify this, but can I bite on a piece of leather and you stick a needle in my knee, shoot me up, because i got to get back in the game, coach. What is wrong with me? I'm 55. I can do 30 pull-ups. Don't tell anyone. It's weird. 90 push-ups yesterday because I did 85 two weeks ago and I started getting close to 85 and I thought I got five more in me and because I can't stop, I'll keep going. All last night, I'm aching. My shoulder hurts. I can't sleep. It's What is going on? I chose the example because I understand it. I get how things get out of whack. Look, we're all idolatrous, all of us, just in different ways and with different things. What is an idol? Because here's what it isn't, and I hope you've picked up on this. It's not this little physical object made out of stone or wood or metal that, you know, primitive people back in the day in their ignorance used to bow down to. No, no, no. An idol is something we create in here, and it is anything that is more important to us than God. It is anything that more captures our heart and mind and thoughts and imaginations than does God. It is anything that we look to to give us things that really only God can give us. It is... It's anything that has become so essential to our lives that we are pretty sure that if we lost it, life would not be worth living. Like we wouldn't just be hurt 
We wouldn't be just, you know, disappointed. We wouldn't be down. We wouldn't even just be devastated. We'd be like, oh, I lost that relationship. It's over. I lost that job. What's my point in life now? Oh, I hurt my knee and now I can't work out. And crazy is that. Is life worth living? You see the difference? It's that thing, and then somewhere down here it's God. And by the way, it's everything and everyone else down here too. And here's what God calls us to do with our idols. He he calls us to forsake our idols, and we hate that thought because they're what we look to for purpose. They're what we look to for meaning. They're what we look to for, for hope, for joy, for satisfaction, for significance, for whatever. Like... You're threatening the core of my being when you come to me and say, forsake your idol. What am I supposed to do? I get the idol off the throne in my heart and then I go, you just get out of the room and I'm going to bolt lock you and throw away the key. You're out now and then I just live empty. Is that the way that it works? No, well, it's not the offer. He's saying, no, no. Let's get rid of the idol. And then you get me. And I actually can bring you hope and meaning and purpose, and joy, and satisfaction, and so forth. Like He's like, I'm not asking you to be empty. I'm asking you for the first time ever to be full. Let me tell you what will make you empty. This idol will make you empty, either because you will find it disappointing, or it will die, or you'll lose it, or both. God's saying, look, you don't have to be empty. I want you to be full, and for the first time ever, really full. And only I can do that. And I think the life of Abraham is perhaps the best illustration of that. You know, when you think about the life of Abraham, like for all that God gave Abraham, and he gave Abraham a lot, you see this theme in his life where God comes to him and says, hey, you know what? These things that are good things, by the way, and good things make the most powerful idols because they hold forth most credibly promise. Oh, this will give you hope. Oh, this will give you meaning. Oh, this will give you satisfaction. This is going to be your joy. You know, like when you go down the street of alcoholic, you're not thinking that's where it's going to end, right? But marriage, maybe. Children, perhaps. Promotion, okay. Good things. Make the most powerful idols. And what you see in Abraham's life is God coming and going, listen, this either has become an idol or this is going to become an idol. So let's be proactive, all right? You're going to have to get rid of this. You're going to have to move this along. We're going to get this out of your life. Why? Because God just enjoys prying our fingers from things? No, no. He pries our fingers from things so that we can hold on to him. That's the point. We see that in Abraham's life too. What are God's first words to Abraham? He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave. No, wait a minute. What is that? That's language of separation. Okay, but what is he going to be called to leave? He's called to leave his, his country. That can be an idol. He's called to leave his relatives. He's called to leave his father's household. All of these things that were his identity. This is who I am. This is, these are my people. Like these are the folks who raised me. My people have been on this land for hundreds of years, perhaps even in his case. I want you to leave all of these things. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you when you get there. Like you're going to arrive. I'm going to point at it and go, that's it. Okay. So it's not like he gets to take the virtual tour before he arrives. He doesn't know what it's going to be like. Oh, and Abraham. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a son. Hang on to that. Why is that powerful? 
Why does that speak uniquely and deeply to the heart of Abraham? Because at this point in his life, he's been married for a long time to a precious woman named Sarah. And they have, throughout the course of their marriage, tried to have children. And it didn't matter how many specialists they saw or whatever, like there, there was no child. And they're getting on in age, so here comes menopause. The clock is running, man, and they can hear it ticking. And all their life, they've been longing for a son. God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I want you to leave your country, your relatives, your father's household. I'm going to give you a land. I'll point it out when we get there. And incidentally, I'm going to give you a son. And so then he leaves, forsakes it all, and he heads to the land. And he heads to the land, and all the while he is thinking, and I think very reasonably, first of all, when I get to the land, it's going to be mine. Right? I mean, God has promised me a land, so when I get to the land, he's going to hand me the title to the land. Secondly, when I get to the land, it's going to be nice. I mean, it's, it's the promised land. I mean, that sounds amazing. Thirdly, By the time we get there, for sure my wife is going to be pregnant. Because again, you know, we're getting up in age and menopause is coming and God has made me this promise and we've waited all our lives for this and obviously he knows how strong of a hold this has in my heart. None of those things happen. So they get to the promised land. It's full of people armed to the teeth. They've been there for generations. They're not leaving without a fight. and He has no shot at that. They get to the promised land And then a famine hits, everything dies. Like they can't even eke out an existence in this place. Still not pregnant. Starting to panic. So what does Abraham do? Because now what he's caused to forsake is all of his expectations, reasonable ones, by the way, in terms of the way that his life was going to go, in terms of the way that God was going to treat him, in terms of the way that the Lord was going to orchestrate the facts and circumstances of his life. Like he, and it's just all disappointed. He picks up his wife. He takes his nephew, Lot. By the way, his brother had died, and he took this man into his family. And they leave. Flocks and herds and whatever, they go down to Egypt to survive the famine. And then they come back up into the land when the famine is over because, you know, I mean, it is the promised land. What is he going to do? So as they're coming back up, while they were in Egypt, Lot also became wealthy. God is pouring out his blessings on this man, Abraham, and his flocks and herds are taken off. His household is growing. And as an overflow of the blessing on Abraham, this man, Lot, his nephew, again, Abraham brought him into the household, loved him like a son took care of him all of his life, this man Lot has grown also wealthy. And with his wealth, he grew arrogant, he grew entitled, he grew ungrateful, he grew insolent. This is insulting if you're Abraham. They come back up into the land and the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham are fighting it out over the grazing rights to the land that God had promised to who? Because it for sure was not Lot. Not promised to Lot. And so to save the relationship, finally, Abraham's like, look, you know, this isn't working. Like, I guess we're going to have to just separate. So here's the deal. I'm going to be gracious about this. If you choose left, I'll go right. If you choose right, I'll go left. There it is. And Lot surveys the land that God has promised to Abraham and not to him, and he chooses the choicest part of the land. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go this way. This looks most prosperous. And in one fell swoop and in the most insulting possible fashions, he loses his nephew and the best part of his land. Remarkable. Oh, still no son. Now they're past menopause. 
So what happens? The ache in here, the ache in here takes over. He despairs of God ever fulfilling his promise of having a son, which, you know, I mean, based on the circumstances, like he's been disappointed thus far with the land. So his wife comes to him and says, look, I I have a solution to the problem. So I'm going to give to you my servant, Hagar, have a son with her. So now what does he do? He goes outside of the will of God to get something. What is that? It's idolatry. That's what it is. God has been waiting. He's been purposefully allowing all of this time to go by. He's been wanting them to see and you to see that he is a God who brings life out of death. He's like, yes, I ordained that you be barren all your life. Yeah, no, no, no. I waited until after menopause. Yeah, okay, hey, hey, hey. It's not going to be till you're 90 that this son is born so that you and the whole world knows that I am a God who brings life out of death. I bring a, a living child out of a, a barren womb, out of a past menopause womb. Like, procreatively speaking, you guys are long dead. And yet none of that is a barrier for me. It's pretty remarkable. So he has a son with this woman. He calls the son Ishmael. And I'm sure he was a great kid. But what happens within the dynamic of that family? Rivalry develops between the women, for example. And and it gets so bad here again that God comes to Abraham and says, Look, bud, we've got to split up the the Yankees here. So here's how this is going to work. Um, I'm going to take care of Hagar and I'm going to take care of your son. But you need to separate from them. You need to send this boy that you love away. And he does. Meanwhile, Sarah becomes miraculously pregnant. Sarah has a son, which has always been his spot, isn't it? It's always been the potential all right, I want you to leave your land and your relatives and your father's household and I'm going to give you a land. He's like, eh, and I'll give you a son. All right, let's pack up. How fast can we go? I despair. I, I, I try to do it myself and I manufacture it and now I have a son. And a... This is the potential idol of his heart. God knows it. It comes to him in Genesis 22. And it says that after these things, God tested Abraham. What is he testing? Well, again, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. So he's going, all right, is it the son or is it me? He tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, you're going to regret saying that. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, which means laughter, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you when you get there. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? When you get there, I'll point it out. And it's threefold. Leave your land, leave your relatives, leave your father's household. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go. Will you go this time knowing that you're going to sacrifice your son? Answer, Yes. 
Now, if you don't know the story, please know that God spares Isaac's life in the end. But like at the last second, and only after Abraham has proven not to God, but to himself, once and for all and definitively, who his God is. Going forward, there is no question or threat of idolatry in terms of the son. And that's his weak spot. God spares the son. But he requires Abraham to prove that God is his God. Why does he do that? Because he loves watching us suffer? Is that the deal? He's just this mean ogre and he's up in heaven. He calls the angels over and goes, well, watch how much he cries over this. And no, no, no. He is a God who enters into our suffering. He's not taking just to take. He doesn't leave you empty. He's saying, no, no, Abraham, I'm going to take that I might infinitely and in abundance give because what I'm going to give to you is me. I love this quote by Joy Davidman. She says this, she says, the real horror of idols is not merely that they give us nothing, but that they take away from us even that which we have. And we see it. You know, the the office becomes your temple and your, your... Partners are your priests, and, and this is the place your God is, because this is the place of respect for you, perhaps, or, or maybe it is money or whatever, and, and so that's really your God, and you spend all of your time there, and what do you sacrifice? Your health, your marriage, maybe your relationship with your kids. We see it. You're all into working out, and what do you sacrifice? Well, anything that interferes with this. You're into love. You're like, oh, I'm going to go outside the will of God to get this if I have to, because it's my God. And it leaves you empty. It leaves you despairing. But I think the biggest thing, well, I don't think, the biggest thing that we miss in our idolatry is the one who himself alone can fill us. He's like, oh, please, forsake that and have me. So I'm going to close with two questions. The first one is, what are your idols? And if you don't know the answer to that, Tim Keller gives us like four really good questions to ask. And the first one is, what do you daydream about? Like your mind most naturally goes to whatever it is that your heart most fully loves. And when it is undistracted and it's not focused on something and you can just let it go and daydream, where does it go? What do you daydream about? Secondly, how do you spend your money? Your money most naturally flows toward whatever it is that your heart most fully loves. Jesus told us this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's revealing. How do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? Like if you're sad, if you're hurt, if you're disappointed, if you're devastated even, but life goes on because life was not about getting that. Okay, that's one thing. But man, if it falls through and you're just like, I guess it's over then that's a clue. And then the last thing is, he says, what are your most uncontrollable emotions? Tim Keller says, he says, just as a fisherman looking for fish knows to go where the fish or where the water is roiling, he says, look for your idols at the bottom of your most painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and that drive you to do things that are wrong. We saw that with Abraham. He despaired to the point, like in this unlifting way, where when his wife came with a potential solution, even though it was outside the will of God, he's like, let's do that. That sounds like a good idea. So what are your idols? That's the first question. And the second one is, what will you do with your idols? Because today is Palm Sunday. This is a great day to figure that out. We are entering into the week of the celebration of the suffering of Jesus, guys. 
of the good day on which he died, of the sins as we meditate on them, and as the love that put him and that then held him on the cross, and of a resurrection from the dead. Look, Jesus came and he suffered and he died and he rose again from the dead, not just to forgive us of our idolatry, but to give us himself. So forsake your idols. They're going to just leave you empty and rob you of what you already have. And receive him. And in him you have everything. Let's pray about that. Father, we, we praise you that there is Jesus. God, we thank you for this week and we celebrate the sufferings of an innocent man done in love for us. God, that is an unfathomable love. We do not deserve that love and yet that is your heart. Oh Lord, as we enter into this week, unmask us. Reveal to us who and what it is we really worship. Let us be honest with ourselves before you about our idols, all the things that our hearts have manufactured over all the years, the things that we have tragically built our lives around that have cost us, ultimately has cost us you, your presence, your fullness. Lord, let us forsake our idols as empty and little as unworthy of the worship of our lives and offer ourselves to you such as we are that you might forgive and make us clean. Lord, that you might heal and make us whole, that you might fill us with your own person and being in the spirit and that you might commission us to spend the rest of our days serving you, doing things that matter for forever. Lord, therein is our identity. Therein is health. Therein is beauty. Therein is significance and security and safety and so forth. In you we find it all. And so God, give us faith to find it all in you. Do this work of repentance and faith in our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.